the biblical notion of linear history with an author, characters, and a purposeful goal was the philosophical foundation for the search for meaning in a narrative of life. Storytelling is meaningless gibberish unless reality itself is narratable. Now, let's apply this yeah. to music. Welcome back to Roundtable, a podcast produced by Mid-America Reform Seminary. This is episode 46, and we're here with uh, Reverend Compton and Dr. Strange on the campus of the seminary talking about Christianity and the arts. Uh, a couple episodes ago, uh, they had discussed literature and art. Just in our previous episode, we had discussed um, film and television. Now we move on to talk about music, and with all of these things, there is an aspect and a component of storytelling. So I just want to discuss a little bit about uh, the possibility for storytelling in the first place. I'm just thinking back on on uh, films just briefly again, just a little bit. There's an excellent book out there called Hollywood Worldviews by Brian Godawa, and he uh, talks about uh, the work of what is called the monomyth. It's it's he describes it as a single truth that all religions and myths are but a manifestation of. So in a very uh, broad way, uh, the monomyth embodies redemption. Okay? Hmm. And, and and consists of a hero's journey from separation to this initiation of return, um coming back to something. Elements of every story we see in a myth. For example, think of the life of Darth Vader. Talk about mm-hmm. redemption, okay? Uh, we as Christians need not fear this concept of the monomyth. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think, you know, we as Christians, um, as, as Brian Kadawa says in his book, we need not fear this concept of the monomyth. We just need to recognize it in its true nature as revelation from God. Once we realize that God is, um, in his words, the ultimate storyteller, by analyzing past history and the various religions and their myths, we see the warping and distorting of the monomyth. But hmm. this in turn hints of an original truth that has been turned into the stench of a lie. So by comprehending the fundamental basis of reality, we, we can see that Christianity alone is the foundation for the possibility of any storytelling. The prerequisite for the perspicuity, he says, of all storytelling, the clarity of it is that we would need to have this understanding of a narratable world. Without that, storytelling would be impossible. I'll finish off with a quote from him again. The biblical notion of linear history with an author, characters, and a purposeful goal was the philosophical foundation for the search for meaning in a narrative of life. Storytelling is meaningless gibberish unless reality itself is narratable. Now, let's apply this yeah. to music. Let's do. Well, obviously, you could start there with Johann Sebastian Bach because you're not going to have to go far away from him to get something of this. Bach wrote extraordinary sacred music, passions based on each of the four evangelists, the B minor mass, the Christmas Oratorio, the Magnificat. Uh, he wrote cantatas <laughs> for more than every Sunday. Um, and he just, in these remarkable pieces, right, was very directly 
and distinctly telling the gospel, quoting the gospel, citing the gospel, giving the gospel story. But it would be true for someone as far away you might think from that. Think of another great German composer, Richard Wagner. Hmm. Now, Wagner is a rather notorious anti-Semite, and there are many other things that we know about Wagner. We know that uh, the Germans, the Nazi movement, loved him. That's not his fault, of course, uh, but there they did so with some reason because he told, particularly in his great uh, four-opera um, magnificent work uh, called The Ring of the Nibelungans, uh, he told this great story from Norse mythology of the creation of the world through to the destruction of the world. Uh, I won't go through each of the operas. I would love to do that and talk about what goes on in each of those. But a recent work, uh, a two-volume work, has just come out that talks about how not only is he talking about Norse mythology here, but how this tracks with the Christian story. And, um, of course, certain of his operas, his last opera, Parsifal, is about the pursuit of the Holy Grail, and also his his opera Lohengrin has similar kinds of things. That's in the middle period. But what's being argued here is that even Wagner, friend of Nietzsche, and in many ways both uh, an anti-Semite and not friendly to Christians generally as well, um, could not escape the great story because, of course, the Norse mythology reflects something of what you were just saying, all mythology does. Uh, but there are so many explicitly Christian elements. Uh, he lived in a Germany in the 19th century that just dripped of these elements, uh, and he uses them. Uh, and, of course, you could I, – I wrote, a, I wrote a, a, a review of Kinds uh, in New Horizons – uh, which is the magazine for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, entitled Bach and Wagner, Two Contrasting Musicians. Hmm. And I was dealing with John Elliott Gardner's wonderful work on Bach. Um, and Roger Scruton, uh, who died not long ago, a brilliant English uh, philosopher and cultural maven um, who wrote a book on Richard Wagner hmm. uh, and talked about many of these sorts of things. And... Um, one of the things that I said there uh, in that article is all great art tells the truth. And that's something of what you were saying. I said, what one cannot find in Wagner's drama, one does find in Wagner's music, hmm. which is not a positive testament to the gospel, but an aching ode to its absence. Hmm. In spite of himself, Wagner tells the truth in his music, especially in his masterpiece, The Ring of the Nibelung. All that is transcendently there and that the drama cannot bear points to something else, something beside and beyond itself, testifying that all great art tells the truth, either explicitly as in Bach or in spite of itself as in Wagner. Wagner was not a believer, as we saw, but he took, and Scruton says this, he took a profoundly religious view of the human condition. He denies the God who is there, but he has to create something in God's place, something that points to him, though falling short, but still a far sight better than the kind of aesthetic bankruptcy that an unimaginative scientism 
of Dawkins and Dennett and that sort yields. Mm. So in other words, uh, what I'm saying mm. is, an, uh, 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 you know, those those unimaginative scientistic I don't mean scientists. I don't have anything against scientists, but I do against people who are naturalists and who yeah. make science everything. They're the most deadly, dull, unimaginative, mm. depressing sorts in a sense you could imagine. And the thing about Wagner is his music is better than him, as all good music can be. I, I know that Shaw put it funnily, he said Wagner is better than he sounds. But <laughs> at any rate, um, yes, there is that there is that redemptive uh, aspect there. And you can hear that uh, you can hear that in 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 the ring in some fascinating ways. Uh, as I say, uh, from the uh, from the four minute double bass opening with increasingly elaborate figurations of the E flat major chord in Das Rheingold, I have to say some technical musical things for our musical fans out there, <laughs> to the unbearable longing, notice why I put this, at of the closing chords of Gerdemerung at the destruction of the world. Mm. If you listen to Wagner, it's again, like C.S. Lewis said, so much of great art and so much of what we encounter speaks of that longing for something greater and more. And that's what you're talking about. That's what Brian Godawa was talking about. And that's probably also what Andrew Compton is talking about. Yeah. Well, isn't, and this is something that I've seen. I mean, it's come from all over the place, but I've especially um, come to think about it through the writings of Francis Schaeffer and then Nancy Piercy, who in many ways is, is, is popularizing and well, Schaefer was already very accessible, but but Piercy even more so accessible, it seems. But but everybody has a fundamentally religious conception of the world. There's a view of creation, there's a view of the fall, there's a view of redemption, and there's some type of view of consummation or eschatology, right? And and this is inescapable. And and how you're describing storytelling, I mean, it, it's um it, that's that's exactly what we see anytime we watch. Uh, somebody's version of the good life, somebody's somebody's um, view of the kingdom. Um, it's that we have an opportunity to say, well, wh- what is driving that person? What are the contours of that worldview, and how is it ultimately bankrupt? At the end of the day, how is how is it only getting them to a certain spot uh, and no further? Yeah, and music, of course, which is what we're talking about now, particularly. Um, music is, is a very remarkable thing. Everything else we've been talking about has words or pictures. Music need not have any of those things. I mean, you were talking about just a moment ago when we were off, Mike, you were talking about Richard Strauss and his tone poems. Mm -hmm. But then musicologists love to talk about Pure music, as they call it, mm-hmm. which is not a tone poem. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's not an opera. It's not a text. And it's not even the kind of music like you're describing with Strauss that's painting a, a picture of something right, right. specific that the composer is trying to get across. It has no text whatsoever to it. And so what is it? about arranged sounds. Mm-hmm. You could say, you know, how do I we think, define music th- even? Think of so many um, um, 
just even yeah. for our listeners' sake, I mean, think of so many concertos, you know, Haydn's trumpet concerto right. isn't exactly telling a story. No. Nope. There's no identifiable nope. plot line. There's no Sturm und Drang that seems to, to be coming out in some type of a plot sense. Right. And yet there's, that would be an example, let's say, of, of pure music. Yeah. Um, but music, whether of the kind we're talking about right now, the more, what do you call it? You could say, if you say serious music, that offends people. I don't want to offend people. <laughs> we'll, we'll say, but that's historically what it would be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to just say classical. That's a period of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll say music for the orchestra, music for the opera. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking popular music, and there's some very good popular music. I mean, you know, there are, there are, there are lyrics, there are profound lyrics by Dylan. You know, there are, there's an, an, I, I think of somebody. Of Paul Simon. I think. Paul Simon is sort of like a Mozart of our time. He can just write music drips off oh, of him and stories. And exactly, exactly. So I mean, we could say a lot more than this, but but what is it about this that we find so appealing and irresistible? We know this that music, maybe unlike any of the stuff we've talked about before is at the heart of our worship of God, and it has a remarkable capacity to lift mm-hmm. up our hearts to God. There, there's the ancient church saying, cantat bis orat. I love that saying that he who sings, some some say he who sings well, but he, and we're not sure who said it. There's a lot of debate about it. But he who sings prays twice. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there's the, the, there's the text that the person is singing. Let's say you were singing a version of the Lord's Prayer. There would be the prayer. But the music itself is a kind of prayer. And this is said in the ancient church. Um, so there's this transcendent quality to music. And as I say, all these other forms can have words, but this is beyond words. And you could have people, we could bring in you know, people, we could take them to the theater. We could take them to all sorts of things. We could take them to Italian opera, which they, they, they do translate. Don't fear those of you who haven't gone to the opera because it's in a different language. They <laughs> translate it and put it above the stage. Don't worry about that. But we have people at our school, thanks be to God, from various cultures. We've had people from Africa. We have people from India. We have people from the, the Far East. We have a variety of, of students that come here. We have Spanish-speaking students that come here from here and and Central and South America. We have people that come from all over. If we were to go to an orchestra concert, though, and just sit, no translation needed. They can hear the Beethoven or the Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. or the Mahler, hopefully. They can hear this glorious music just like we can hear it. And so music does have that, that sort of bridge quality in just its production that nothing else quite has because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to have English subtitles or Spanish subtitles or, or any other kinds of subtitles. Um, and, and the, the music in the Bible, we, we can really talk about that and the Psalms, right? The singing of Psalms, we should get, we should get, uh, brother Andrew, your dear wife, Pam in here, mm. here. Uh, we should have an episode on sacred music and hymnody. Oh, yeah. Uh, his wife, I tend to uh, defer to doctor, her on these questions. <laughs> doctor Compton, which is not Reverend Compton here. Right. His wife uh, has uh, done a lot of work uh, in, in sacred music, and uh, would be great to have a, a conversation. Mm. Also, Jared's wife, uh, Maria, is quite uh, the musician. Uh, is studying and is not only does she have a magnificent voice, having transitioned uh, to some of the higher uh, registers, uh, but. <laughs> 
she uh, is quite interested in music history and literature. Uh, and so these would be also great conversations to have. We're just yeah, scratching yeah, the surface yeah. here today. But the Christian church has had a seminal influence on music. It has a, on art. We know that art in the Middle Ages was very much influenced by Christian themes. But music, and music was in the service of the church. And unlike some of the debates you get about art and the appropriateness of visual representation, all the traditions have had music in their worship, mm-hmm. all the traditions. And not that there aren't some different views about whether you should have instruments or not. We understand that. But they've all had music involved in the worship, which has had a particular place uh, for the church. And Renaissance music uh, and, and coming into the music of the common era, Baroque music, you're going to get as kind of the child of the Enlightenment. You're going to get a lot more music that isn't just church music. But the Reformation does the same thing. I mean, the Reformation, you can think about what that does to art. It makes not only uh, the church had taught that sacred subjects were the only proper subjects of art. That's what was often taught. Well, the Reformation said, well, all of life, and you get Rembrandt and Vermeer and so many others depicting just daily life, and in a sense, the sanctification of that. Mm, mm-hmm. And you get that in music as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were talking about Bach, uh, but Bach wrote, he not only wrote all of those great cantatas, but he wrote the Brandenburg Concerti. Yep. He wrote the English Suites. We could just go on and on. He wrote a number of secular cantatas. That's he right. That's several right. dozen of those. That's right. It's, uh, just, again, That's drawing right. on mythology or just... And, uh, Scenarios and sort of one of the one of stories. the one of the responses of that you can think of somebody like Handel who wrote mm-hmm. a number of Italian operas as well as many of our listeners would be familiar with. He wrote a number of oratories, uh, oratorios, not only of course Messiah, but Israel and Egypt and so forth, and um, it's and some secular it's, oratorios. It's, it, yes, yeah. it's interesting. You might want to note that part of the way this got written was. Operas were thought to be appropriate for uh, viewing and engaging at various times of the year, except during Lent. (laughs) And he initially wrote a lot of those oratorios for the Lenten season uh, where sacred uh, themes should be treated as it was thought then. So, um, but music, the church has obviously, and Christians have obviously had a great deal to do uh, with music, but... There's so much that we could say about this. And we're not excluding, as you heard, popular music from this. We're not trying to be elitists, though we're also not saying at the same time, we're trying to be rather uh, textured. We're not saying that in any of these areas, there are no standards. Now, it's interesting. I just say this to say some Christians, even Reformed Christians, who would never say there are no ethical standards. I mean, no Christian worthy of the name, right, would say there are no ethical standards. A Christian says, no, God's word gives us how we ought to live, and we're bound by that. But there are Christians who would say there are no aesthetic standards. They would have their own version of beauty is in the eye beholder, meaning whatever I like is good. Well, listen, okay, true confessions, they may want to cut this out, but I I like Doritos, (laughs) but I don't play like they're that great for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think they should be my primary and only diet. I mean, I allow myself probably more than my doctor would want me to, but I I allow myself some of these things. The point being is 
we may even like literature that's not the best at this point. I don't mean something salacious. I mean just something more popular, not well-written. We may like a piece of music that is not as well-written. But that doesn't mean, because we like it, that we can't then talk about the real merits of a piece of literature given a set of standards, and that we can't talk about the same thing with a piece of music, Mm -hmm. given musical standards. And you might say, where do we derive these standards from the Bible? No, we don't. Any more than we derive the standards of excellence in many areas, they're derived from people put it in different ways. They're part of our being in the image of God. We can call them innate in some ways. Some people want to connect this with the natural law. Some people want to connect it with wisdom. There are a lot of ways to get at this, but there are standards. So there's ways in which you can say objectively, you know, I remember uh, uh, a professor saying this, Dan McCartney, you can say objectively in certain respects, you can appreciate he was saying, because somebody was arguing with respect to Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson was a remarkable dancer and singer. He was he was a remarkably gifted fellow. Producer of records. But exactly. Uh, but from- he was arguing that Mozart, as a musician, had some advantages over Michael Jackson. And there were several students who were have nothing of it. Mm. They would just say that's strictly a matter of preference. And he was saying... No, you can actually talk about standards, and I'm not therefore saying Jackson is no good, and I'm not saying don't listen to him, and I say judge him on the basis of what he's doing. Judge him on the standards of his own uh, profession. But we're we're saying something rather complicated here that has been said throughout Christian history. We don't need to we don't need to just say anything goes. With, we don't think nobody on this prod, podcast would say, and we've been trying to make this clear, anything goes with respect to morals. Mm-hmm. We're also not saying anything goes with respect to excellence. Now, it is interesting how there are different genres of music. Right. And and, and that is what you're, what you're getting at here. And what is so interesting is that humans seem, again, cr- hardwired, right? We're created to respond to, to sound. Right, it's a, it, there's a uh, one writer um, describes these the, the, this patterning of sound and time that we find in music, and and that can undergird messages. Of course, some you know it, right in the beginning of the Bible, we have a song that undergirds a very negative message. Right uh, from Genesis four, where Lamech sings a song about his um, you know his, his boasting in killing a man and and. Um, having more vengeance than God would even have, right? And and undergirding that in, in this poetic and this verse song-like quality. And yet the addition of music to a message ga- uh, gathers to it a real uh, a vividness and a, mm. and a compelling nature. It is remarkable how, how that patterning of sound and time, which itself incidentally, we're not really going into that, but it reflects the very structure of the cosmos. The right. the universe resonates. If I bang on this table here, I don't know if we heard that in the, the mic, if we bang on something, there are uh, patterns. The, the table is vibrating for however long in very predictable patterns. And music draws on those patterns. The overtone series, as it's called, um, 
And and there is really something that we're drawn to in this arrangement of sound and whether in terms of melodies as they go up and down and as they speed up and slow down or or rhythms as they as they move us along or even just chord structures that resonate in certain ways. We can think of like the evil the evil tritone, you know, that was banned in the church. Right. Um, nowadays you hear it in the ambulance. Just, da, 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 da. I think I've got my tuning off. But that was banned for a time because it was thought to be an evil chord. Right. Uh, but the, the, the fact is people resonate, no pun intended, with sound and with music. Well, and the connection there, obviously, of course, we could, this would be a whole nother one. We should get, I know some people we could get in to talk about the the deep connections with math in mm. terms of Euclid Pythagoras. You were kind of getting at that, uh, even, even how we, even how we tune understanding mm. chordal structures. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, the, and with that, the, the very, um, this is even seen. It's so interesting in the, the more recent, there's even an entire field of music therapy. Mm. People, uh, hospitals around the world have music therapists who show up and to the bedsides, art therapy. Oh, you yeah. can think of a number of, of different kinds of that. But, but I'm, you know, with, with regard to music, I had a friend uh, in the hospital who ended up having, uh, having an amputation and in great pain during that time. And yet another friend came in with their instrument and played for a time. And even in the midst of excruciating pain, but he missed um, the cutoff. Oh my! Oh my! Mm-hmm. Punny, punny, punny. <laughs> the um, <laughs> but the, that even in that excruciating pain, uh, that music being performed was able to um, to give them reprieve. There's a physiological uh, element to music. Well, one thing too, just maybe one of the latter things here, you're mentioning Lamech makes me think of something that I've wanted to mention, which is, of course, it's among the descendants of Cain. Yes. That we read about all these musical arts. And Kuiper treats that nicely in the Stone Lectures in terms of how is it that the nations outside of Israel had many gifts, if not more gifts, it appears, and so are those to be despised? Calvin says, neither science nor art is to be despised, but God is to be given thanks for it. We, got, we don't despise the fact that we have advanced medically as we have, nor do we despise the fact that we can enjoy by way of an excellent theatrical performance mm. or orchestral performance or a popular song, something of beauty. And so concludes our series on Christianity and the arts. I hope you enjoyed the conversations that I was able to have with Reverend Compton and Dr. Strange on this subject matter and hope you uh, continue to engage in the arts in a way that is faithful to our convictions as Christians, as Reformed Christians even. Well, next week I'm joined with a special guest, someone who's been quite integral to the seminary community for almost a year now. Mr. Brian Blummer, our Director of Enrollment Management. I was able to sit down with Brian. We had a wonderful conversation, so stay tuned for that. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.